ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. My guest today is Gazella Kaplan. Gazella was once looking after a magpie at her place, where she also had a cat and a dog. And that magpie learned to say the dog's name so that whenever the cat started getting a little too close for comfort, the magpie would call out for the dog. Now, that is brilliant on a bunch of levels. First, that the magpie could learn and say the dog's name, but also that it had the smarts to think of calling the dog in as a bodyguard. Gazella Kaplan is a field biologist, and she has spent many years observing Australian birds up close. She's found them to be smarter, funnier, and more emotional than most of us realise. Although birds and humans are separated by millions of years of evolution, it turns out we have a lot in common. Gazella has written books on magpies, tawny frogmouths, and on bird cognition. Her latest book is called Bird Bonds. Hi, Gazella. Welcome to Conversations. Good morning, Tara. How did you start caring for birds at home? Why did you begin this? I didn't begin this at all. This was uh, a, a birthday present, a course to do uh, a course for, for rescue and rehabilitation of wildlife. And I thought it was a nice present and an unusual present. <laughs> and um, the uh, person who gave that to me never thought this would come out of it. Because <laughs> you were happily living your life with a, a, a different job, quite separate from... Yes. Yes, field indeed, biology. Indeed. And uh, so I started all over again because it became so fascinating. And there's a difference, you know. I have loved every job I've done in my life. And I've been privileged enough to be given roles that I enjoyed. But this one is different. Birds did something. And I just so hope other people can actually experience that, that you don't just love doing something and you say it and it's bearable and it's not unpleasant, but that you are passionate about, that somehow you can't stop yourself but continue doing it. <laughs> well, tell me about this first bird after you did your wildlife <laughs> rehabilitation what? course. Who was the first bird that you cared for? The very first bird because nobody wanted to look after magpies. Uh, sometimes magpies are orphaned for all sorts, a variety of reasons, but uh, uh, so, but magpies need months of care. So they are very, very uh, labour intensive. What sort of care does a baby magpie well, need? Well, a baby magpie needs something like three months of feeding post-fledging even. So it's the normal period of three, four weeks uh, during nesting and usually don't get them right at the beginning. You get them about two weeks old or something. And uh, if they are that young... And then, uh, but then it's three months at least afterwards. And then the social teaching starts. They're not ready to go out into the world. That's why the parents keep them under close control. So it's an involvement as if you have a two-year-old child. It, well, I was just going to say, it almost sounds like looking after oh, a I baby. I couldn't go to work. I had students come to home and, <laughs> and I said, look, I have to feed in, in uh, 15 minutes. I never make it there and back. And I said, you're putting the magpies first before the humans? I said, yes, it's very <laughs> obvious. The magpie needs me. <laughs> well, well, what sort of bonds did you and this magpie form with one another? Well, uh, magpies are very interesting. You may get some uh, uh, juveniles or even nestlings of some species that will take all the food from you and they will behave very nicely 
and they won't know you afterwards. No sense of gratitude or of interest or attachment or personal relationship. It's just a loss of fear of humans. I'll talk about the magpie in a minute again, but just to give you the difference, how different reactions are. These two kookaburras, which I had from day four onwards, they were found on the ground, naked, blind, and uh, the person who found them didn't even know what they were. But because they had little wings, they said it must be must be a bird. <laughs> that must be I must get that to Gisela. So uh, <laughs> and uh, so I took these, raised them. They became beautiful kookaburras, and uh, then I was told that occasionally they get adopted by adults. But you have to be very careful with this uh, kind of procedure. You have to watch every day through the binoculars whether the wild ones come to the uh, aviary and try to feed it. They must have something in their beak. Sometimes if they come close, they mean to say, what are you doing here, and we chase you out. But if they have food in their beak, it's a sign that they would foster them. So I saw that one day, ran out, and said, well, here you are, little ones. I hope you feel the same as the adults feel. You know, go to them. And they immediately went to them, and then they disappeared. And then I felt terribly guilty for days and weeks. Why? Because I thought, what if I've made a mistake? And these poor things are not independent enough. They're not ready to find food by themselves. What if they now die a miserable death of starvation and stress? And I, I was frantic. I looked for them everywhere. After four weeks, I came back. They sat in a tree and they moaned their kind of food call moaning, which is very irritating when you hear that <laughs> about five hours a day. It's like... <laughs> and it, it goes on and on at a higher volume than I've presented here. But uh, anyway, I took a ladder, all the trouble, took a ladder, went to the gum tree, got to their branch. They looked with interest at me, looked at interest with the... Uh, food I had for them, looked at it, didn't take it. Then the other kookaburras called them over and they flew away. Not a second thought. You were nothing to them, Gazelle, after all that love. And in a way, for any wildlife carer, that is a beautiful outcome. You know, they had merged back into the wild. But it was a little hurtful at the time, I can tell you. But So the magpies are quite different. They actually form friendships cross species quite readily, and they seem to sort of recognise it. And with humans, uh, I've got many stories. In with Australia. this first magpie that you yep. cared for, did it follow you about when when uh, it was yes, it did. growing? But that is still the behaviour that is a natural behaviour, as I would do in those months. That's how they learn. How they learn to find food. How. Uh, they learn when to go where and what to look for and so forth. So, yes, the magpies would walk with me. So, unlike in other gardens where birds fly away in my garden, all the birds come to me. <laughs> sounds like a fairy story. Yeah, so yeah. This, but I'm just thinking back when you first had this magpie and you didn't know much about no. birds. Were you Was this magpie behaving in ways that you were surprised by? I mean, was it... Was it behaving or showing signs of intelligence or personality that you maybe weren't expecting? Well, apart from one budgie and some swans, I had no prior exposure to birds at all. And that meant that was a good thing in one way and a bad thing in another. Obviously, a bad thing in level of knowledge that I had to acquire over the years, but also... It uh, without knowledge, you don't absorb all the prejudices that are in the literature. 
and uh, is enormous bias in the literature and has been in the past. And uh, I didn't grow up with it, so I didn't share it. So it was a fresh look or ignorant or innocent or fresh, uh, whatever you want to call it. But it wasn't weighed down by that kind of schooling um, that was quite common, really, till the 1960s, 70s. Well, what's the biggest bias that there exists around well, Australian there birds? There are so many of them, uh, Sarah. But the first one we have already discussed, that's... Uh, that birds are just these little automatons and they don't have feelings and they don't have a brain. They're certainly stupid little things and we don't owe them any moral obligation. We can do with them what we like. So that was still taught in the 60s in biology. So there are people alive who have grown up with that view of birds. And, of course, that's always in the absence of any study, which is I find so remarkable. But they're so deep-seated as prejudices that people very often aren't even aware they have them. For a long time in Australia, too, we looked at all of the extraordinary things in our landscape through the prism of European exactly. biology and, and fauna. Was that the case with birds? Well, very definitely, very definitely. And uh, it, it's just amazing to read the history of um, a particular British settlement in Australia in the 19th century that uh, formed these acclimatisation societies. And uh, acclimatisation meant uh, we are going to improve on the flora and fauna of Australia because obviously all that's in Australia is rubbish. And that was the attitude, and it was an imperial British Empire attitude because Australia didn't offer the riches that Burma offered and uh, that South Africa offered and so forth. So everything was rubbish. An amazing attitude. Some of it has become uh, funny where uh, you have poetry of the bloody gum tree that drops its branches. And uh, yeah, I think there are even uh, black pies about bloody magpies. <laughs> well, that and I so, understand. Uh, very unappreciative, but uh, there's a deep-seated colonial attitude behind that and that we had to overcome. Many people have overcome it, of course. What have we learned about the evolution of songbirds that, that just in the last last decade or so that made us realise Australia's pivotal role in in the development of singing well, birds? Well, that's a story in itself. Australian taxonomists and uh, paleontologists and various working in various fields doing excellent work in the seventies, eighties, and nineties were laughed out of conferences internationally for their views that modern birds evolved in Australia. They said it's ridiculous. Australia doesn't even have many birds and it's got such peculiar birds anyway. They're not no resemblance. You know, the magpie, of course, is called after the, the black-built magpie of Europe. Not the same thing. But uh, significantly, and as it often happens, in 2004, papers came out that showed beyond doubt that all modern songbirds evolved in Australia. And how that happened was simply that 65 million years ago, there was this massive extinction event that happened in the Gulf of Mexico. Whatever came down, the latest, I think, is that the meteor or something darkened the sky for years. Plants died, animals died, the dinosaurs went extinct, and actually 75% of all life on Earth went extinct in 65 million years ago. And it was only a very recent discovery, final proof in 2004, that in East Gondwana, you know, that's that supercontinent, East Gondwana, which is now Australia, 
there were these little pockets left where species survived. And some say 16 lineages, some say 22 lineages of birds survived. Somebody called them dinosaurs, but that's not quite clear. They survived as bird species, and they were uh, cockatoos, for instance, have stem species that date back 95 million years of continuous evolution so on this continent. are there birds that we know now, that we see in our yes, gardens, yes, who've been around yes. since the dinosaurs? Think of lyrebirds, think of emus, think of uh, um, uh, cassowaries. These are the old-timers, the one-parent models, you know. But then also... The, the cockatoos and all the modern songbirds. There were just enough left and there was an explosion of those uh, new species after the dust had settled and the sun came out and some plants had survived. And uh, because Australia was by that time rather isolated, uh, they evolved into all of these different capacities. And... So we have to look back and see, you know, behavior doesn't leave a record. But what we do know is that by about 40 million years ago, birds took to nesting sites in caves and in, and uh, started building their own nests. I mean, that's a fabulous innovation. When you were first caring for that little injured magpie that was following you around the yard, you didn't know any of that. You were, I didn't know any of that at all. You were professor of social science. Yes. So what career change did looking after well, that magpie uh, you bring see, to you? I, I had a, I studied or psychology was one of my strong fields and uh, that was good enough for primatology and animal behaviour, but it's not good enough for birds. You really need to learn a lot of new things. And so I learned all about the differences and learned all about this. But when I met this magpie, all I could say is that this is a remarkable, affectionate, clever, interested, curious, personable, but and extremely playful. And I realized that I had all sorts of deep-seated prejudices myself. Did that first magpie mimic human speech? Well, that was the next big step, and that's when I gave up everything else and started studying and did another PhD because I was absolutely another PhD. Over. Yeah, I did oh. another PhD. Well, you can't. You, you would <laughs> so, never be taken seriously, and and it's fair enough because I didn't know enough. Well, what I did, didn't know anything. What did this little magpie say? The little magpie said one day, not looking at me, I didn't know where it came from, it said, I have got dinner for you. <laughs> it didn't. It did. I've got dinner for you. And I knew I was alone in the house. There was nobody else on the property. And I said, where did that come from? And, of course, it came from the direction of the aviary of the magpie. I took the uh, magpie into its aviary when I had to be inside the house and I took the magpie out and it walked with me and all of that. And um, so I thought, well, I don't know whether I'm going <laughs> mad here or something, but I put a tape recording out, have a microphone, have microphones attached everywhere inside the house, and I thought, well, perhaps I catch something else and perhaps this was a fluke. And then there was something else and there was something else, and I recorded it all, and that time I could look through the living room window to the ivory and could see that it was a bird and identify Definitely it was a bird. So, uh, of course, I hadn't read all the literature. Chisholm had already said that uh, there are many Australian bird species that can mimic very well. He thought 48 species, you know, and we have just about confirmed most of them. After you 
began this new field of study, your second PhD, looking at birds. Were you also taking in more rescue birds at home? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, the moment somebody signs up for a wildlife organisation and I want to warn people, there's such a shortage. Uh, I've received birds from morning to night. I had as many as 28 or 30 patients and sometimes sometimes I didn't recognise the species because they were so little of Feathers hadn't grown. They looked just like little dinosaurs, not only something a mother could love, you know. (laughs) Did Uh, you give each of them names? I gave some. I tried not to do that, but uh, if I had more of the same, I tended to give them names. So I discovered very quickly that birds have individual personalities, even within the same clutch, you know. If you get, I had three uh, Eastern Rosellas ones raised together. Those three were very different from who, one another. Who was the submarine? Uh, uh, the submarine was a little uh, tawny frogmouth youngster. That was an interesting story with the submarine because that was a, um, a rescued father and a wild mother. And that's the crowning glory for any wildlife rehabilitation to say, not only have I saved this bird and successfully released it, but it's paired up and produced a viable young in the wild. Wonderful uh, little story. And I was walking around the place perfectly happy and excited about this. And they allowed me close to their nestling. So I, I was able to actually document the development of tawny frogmouth from from a meter away and when the bird was ready to fly i then recorded the young uh, one's behavior and it turned from this loving fluffy thing to an abs- into an absolute monster it was the worst kind of teenager you can imagine because it wasn't obedient at all didn't do what the parents wanted to do was 30 degrees, even in Armadale, was 30 degrees outside. Tin roofs get hot during the day. What does this little bird do? Sit in the middle of the hot roof <laughs> in the middle of the day, exposed, which is dangerous, and the parents had no choice but to sit with it in the in the hot sun. And um, it had a flight pattern that was so erratic that I called it submarine. It was more like something under, under the water. I... Every moment of the day, I thought when this bird flew, it would surely crash to the ground. <laughs> it never did, but it wasn't a very elegant flight. But uh, it became very, very efficient in picking off uh, uh, Christmas beetles from the gum tree. And uh, that bird also taught me something very important because uh, for some reason I had, uh, I think I wanted to discourage it to go somewhere from a perch, so I put some eucalypt branches there with new leaves. You see, so many of the discoveries are accidental, and uh, it started chewing those. And then I gave it to other tawny frogmouths, and they started chewing eucalypt leaves. And my theory is now that they do this from a young age on to be sort of tolerant to Christmas beetles. Oh, who eat they carry the toxins of the eucalyptus in them and at higher concentrations. And I think this chewing of those leaves gives them the kind of tolerance that makes them able to chew chew on. And, of course, most carers uh, 
uh, don't do that and don't know that. So all of these the discoveries, the gum totally... tree vaccination, back <laughs> back to the 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 observing use of language, I guess, for want of a better word. I mean, cockatoos are known to be able to mimic sounds. You had a thirty-five-year-old cockatoo, uh, sulphur-crested cockatoo, who came to you. How long did it take for him to use words with you? Well, uh, I have had, uh, you know, there are cases when we've taken native animals that were in the pet situation and not treated well. And we never asked a question. There are no regulations against cruelty uh, and nobody's particularly interested whether a cockatoo suffers. In fact, you know, they're not even protected by law west of the dividing ranges and anybody can shoot them. And that's one of our oldest most distinguished birds in the world. It's got a history of 95 million years or somewhere thereabouts. It's one of the brightest, one of the five brightest birds in the world with the biggest brain and the biggest capacity and the closest to humans, actually. And we seem to dislike anything and that's we're allowed, similar yeah, to it. It's legal to shoot yes, cockatoos? Yes, it is legal to shoot them. Of course, they do fetch high prices. And I have told farmers, and I said, you're shooting... $10,000. Why would you do that? I mean, it, is there that much hate? Tell me about this sulphur-crested cockatoo that you had that had been treated badly and, and hadn't been speaking well, when you first got it. When cockatoos, because they're, let's say, let's compare them to an eight-year-old child. And an eight-year-old child that's badly abused will suffer emotionally terribly. And they may even go into some catatonic state. In birds, it manifests that they can't take in the outside world. They sometimes sway with their heads around in these kind of choreographed movements. They don't respond to any stimulus outside. They sometimes whimper or not, and they often lose their feathers from stress, high, very high stress. And this bird was almost naked when I got it. So it doesn't look extremely attractive. A, a naked cockatoo is really not a thing of beauty, you know. <laughs> um, but you do know that this bird is close to death when that happens. And um, I thought I'll give it a shot. And it took me five years. Five years. After five years, the bird was turning around. It had all its feathers back. It looked as healthy as could be. And I walked by. I had a little session with the bird every few hours every day and uh, then went away. So it was no longer afraid of me. That was really important. It just said, hello. <laughs> and I said, okay, welcome back. And now he rules the roost. <laughs> he insists that any visitor coming to the house has first to be introduced to him. <laughs> has his language expanded beyond yes, he that has, hello? Uh, he has new words. And uh, he uh, chooses those wisely and he has different intonations and he can mimic. He is the most complete mimic of emphysema I have ever heard. <laughs> he uh, literally 
any nurse or any doctor of emphysema can tell you that he can copy the beginning stages to the critical stages <laughs> in every shade and form. And it's appalling. But, uh, <laughs> but that was one owner, obviously, who suffered a severe case of emphysema. So, An so, owner that came before you, that he, yes, he was yes. remembering. That's incredible. And you had a, a galah, another yep. elderly uh, bird, a galah yep. this time, gazella. What did you realise it had learned to say? Well, the, uh, the, the 75 years old, I have to say. 75? When I received him in very poor health, in fact, in such bad state of health, uh, when you get vomiting or diarrhoea in a bird, you know it's very close to death. And I said, it's about a day away from dying, and it's 75 years old. Oh, can you do something with this bird? And I said, well, I'll try. Throw everything at it that, that I know. And it recovered, and it stayed eight years with us. And in those eight years, we have, uh, and this is again true of the uh, of the cockatoo as well. It's the uh, lifetime learning ability of the brain that humans have, and some bird species have, and certainly all cockatoos have. They can learn throughout their lives, and they can learn new things. So the the cockatoo, uh, the uh, galah, maintained his vocabulary from previous times and we know that he had some Indian family because he greeted us with Om Shanti which is a nice <laughs> peace be with you and I thought well perhaps he was an Indian family or was hippies who did the Om Shanti thing you know peace be with you and I put Indian music on and he immediately danced to that and was extremely happy. So there you are. He had Indian music. He had nice people who looked after him, but then very nasty people afterwards. And and he learnt your names of your dogs, I think, this uh, well, He learned lots of new things. He was actually better than uh, the suffer-crested cockatoo in learning new words, but he learned all the names of the dogs. And they were so unlikely that... Uh, Really, we uh, have to assume that he's never heard the words before. What was it calling your dogs for, did you work out? Well, I was asked once whether birds have a sense of humour, and of course that's terribly difficult to prove and uh, is more a rhetorical question. But when I think of these actions of the galah, I almost believe that that may well be so in some species because that bird not only learned to call the dogs, and mind you, the galah, you know about the size of a galah, and compare that to a Rhodesian Ridgeback. Now, we had four Rhodesian Ridgebacks. He learned the words for each Rhodesian Ridgeback, called them in a tone of voice that was so akin to mine <laughs> that all the dogs came running, and he told them to sit he was like a sergeant major in front, in front of those four dogs. Of course, tiny. They didn't even reach up to the knees of the dogs. And then made them all sit in line. And then he waddled away. <laughs> Once he'd achieved that, that was a crowning glory. And I think that's a sense of humour, surely. <laughs> Can't have been good for those Rhodesian Ridgeback sense of ego being no. pushed around by Sergeant Galar. <laughs> You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.
What other modes of communication have you seen birds using, Gazella, besides these vocal sounds? How do they communicate with one another besides bird songs? I've worked for years on communication. Of course, uh, having done a lot of primatology, they're non vocal sounds and gestures. And uh, in uh, chimpanzees, for instance, it's thought that gesturing became always the predecessor to language, actually, because it's more and more defined in meaning that uh, here I want this there or I can make a sign for a ball or I can and make a sign. And it's showing abstract thought, isn't and it? Abstract thought. So the, develop- the areas of the brain are certainly in place. So but, uh, there's a lot of non-vocal communication in uh, Australian birds as well. And some of them I expressed and said, oh, the birds don't have a face. Actually, Pat Bateson, who was a very noted ornithologist plus the uh, uh, chair of the Royal Society, said they have a face. And I'm saying they have a face. If he said it, I can say <laughs> they have a face and they have the kind of, uh, not musculature in the face, but they have... The in the epidermis, the ability to move the feathers about. So the feather position can change according to mood and can very, send very powerful signals. So that's like facial expression. It's like facial expression indeed, because if the feathers go out in this way and said, I wouldn't mind a cuddle, if the feathers go out in the back of the neck and the galah, certainly they don't want to come any closer. It'll be a very swift uh, bite. And once one has done this often enough and see how it's reinforced and uh, maintained consistently, then you do know it's a communicative uh, gesture. So uh, it is quite powerful. So it's non-vocal, it's vocal, and it's even in body movement. What about pointing? Because that's meant to be a very, you know, important cognitive development, the ability to point. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, pointing was seen to be a very advanced cognitive ability in humans, and then it was discovered in uh, uh, chimpanzees, and in orangutans it's the same. And, of course, birds can't point because you need hands (laughs) until I found that they can point, but they need their whole body to do it, and it's a very uncomfortable posture. And I published this paper uh, a few years ago, and I did this on the basis of field experiments. With what sort of birds? Uh, magpies. How about that? They move their whole body? They well, lift a leg? What uh, do they do? The uh, The problem is they are a group in their territory. So when a wedge-tailed eagle comes into their territory, there's a real danger to them, and they need to all inform each other, and they do extremely well and efficiently. But uh, the test I did was out in the open was no problem. But then I had one tax, a taxidermic model, a real good uh, wedge-tailed eagle, looked like a real-life one. Under the undercover, it was half hidden by shrubbery, only half hidden, enough to overlook it. And one spotted it and then made a call that was an particular eagle alarm call which I then identified as a as a meaningful call for all eagles and uh, warned the others but then the others come came in and didn't see it so the magpie stretched forward almost fell off the perch and pointed its beak in that direction and in a straight line with the spine and the back so the other looked at it and it was in a different position to the bird and it then did exactly the same, not following the example of the first in the same angle, but in the angle relevant to the eagle until the whole family was there. And once they all knew 
the eagle was there. They then waited around whether the eagle was coming out because they were going to tell it to to disappear. So there was clear evidence, experimental evidence of um, uh, of pointing and behavior. What does that tell you about a bird's brain? The ability well, to do that. That's an abstract thing. You are telling somebody else. It means you're asking somebody else to understand your signal that is not about yourself but about a third item. And that's a huge cognitive step. Birds, native birds in Australia can live very long lives, like your galah who came to you at 75. And that means, I guess, that their different stages of life are, are quite extended. What about teenage life for native birds? You mentioned your naughty, tawny frog mouth. What else uh, are teenage birds up to in Australia? Well, the question I asked in, in the book and throughout actually ever studying anything about the, the Australian birds, why do they live that long? And it was dismissed by most of my northern uh, hemisphere colleagues as something because of the climate. But uh, that's not really very useful because it's useful for the tropics when the temperature differences are not that great. But in Australia, and particularly in Arbidale, you know, where I was at the University of New England for many years, the winters are terribly cold and there's no mistaking that this is a temperate climate and has seasonal changes. So it wasn't a seasonal thing. And uh, so you had to ask, why do they live that long? And when you then think backwards that They've obviously chosen a strategy of reproducing that goes for quality rather than quantity, that demands a partner, that demands cooperation. You then get a very poor outcome at the beginning. You get, uh, after an egg is hatched, you get a bird that's so helpless and looks hopeless and has no... It has no feathers, can't do a thing by itself. But the advantages, as in humans, and that's what we share with um, with humans, really, or what we share with birds, is that these altricial states, they're called, they are allow that new organism to grow for a long time and develop much further than would be possible if they were born in a more advanced stage. And i give you an example of that. The brain in a precocial species, let's say like the emu, like any duck. Or a bush turkey, a scrub turkey. Brush, uh, turkey or whatever. You end up with a functioning little gorgeous thing that's uh, fluffy and feathered and can usually feed itself, but not just may need a little bit of parental protection. But basically it's intact to go out into the world. These blind and naked and uh, helpless things that are the altricial birds have none of these abilities. But in the precocial animals, the brain only grows after they've hatched by one to two times uh -huh. from the original size. And in altricial birds, particularly the super altricial ones like cockatoos, it's eight to ten times. Wow. Same as in humans. So eight. they need a lot more care early on like we do. Exactly. But so the, the benefits are is big the, brains. The cost is that you need at least two adults, if not more, to look after them. And the benefit is you get a far more for brainy, independent, maximizing your capacity to live in the world and survive in the end. For so, humans, some of those teenage years then are devoted to 
paying attention to the opposite sex, getting interested in them, learning out how to have a relationship, what you like, what you don't, what your boundaries are. Yeah. Birds doing the same thing as teenagers? Well, exactly. But the, the point that I was asking, why would any bird commit to another in the presence of so many other options? And why would they stay together after they've raised them? They could easily say, well, that was hard enough. We've had a year and a half or two of it. Thank you very much. Many new parents feel I'll that be, way. Uh, I'll be a bachelor from now on, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a valid question. Why do they stay together? The idea was always that we have reproduction as the biological necessity for each bird. Well, only 5 to 16% of birds breed in any given year. So what will the others do? You know, what happens, uh, in fact, in their social relationships? And in fact, some of the species have long childhoods because the parents supervise them. They even go into crashes. Galahs have uh, incredibly complex crash systems. And uh, ju the juveniles get to know each other and they go through a social learning period. And uh, that social learning period is, in fact, I've, I've developed a new hypothesis, and it's so impossible to pronounce it that I'm sure nobody will ever remember <laughs> it. But it's a pre-productive, pro-social uh, pro hypothesis. But the pro-social thing has become a very important topic in human uh, psychology. So and that means in pro-social, we mean the ages between sort of 12 and 16, and it's interesting that the brain is only capable of fine-tuning uh, more complex facets of another person's feelings. Or another bird's feeling in or, this case. And the interesting thing is that the kind of hormonal network that's needed in order to pick that up is also there in birds. So birds get to know each other socially yes. before they commit to mating with another bird. Yes, long before, long before reproduction. We have always thought that reproduction, you know, the selfish gene thing that uh, reproduction at any point in anywhere, everybody does it and everybody will go for anybody anytime, sort of really Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't <laughs> happen at all. They do this long social friendship thing. And uh, the first studies were probably of the uh, albatross because the question arose, when the albatross young leaves, it leaves the, the islands where it nests, goes, stays at sea for four or five years. They don't breed till they're 12 or 14. So what happens in the meantime? Ha, huh, after the fifth, sixth year, they actually go back to the island, meet the other juveniles, and they keep going back. And then when they're 12 or 13, they, they breed. Cockatoos, our self-requested cockatoos, they're not even sexually mature till they are seven. But they are there in their social group interacting with each other. So we have in human society people who get married to each other, sometimes in second marriages as a safeguard, the childhood sweetheart. Birds, some birds can do exactly the same thing. It's not just familiarity, but they have, in fact, picked up on the sensitivity of the other and even developed something like empathy. Now, that involves dopamine, it involves oxytocin. How can you tell if a bird is showing empathy? Uh, well, you don't, but if birds start preening each other, it was always dismissed just as a, you know, control of ectoparasites. Now, if it's control of ectoparasites, every bird should do it. But that's not true. It's only for couples. 
and for very special couples and for long-term couples. So the idea of preening is a reassuring and apparently a very feel-good thing. It's like a cuddle. You had some lovebirds, a pair of lovebirds for a long time, Gazella, that you looked at. What did you notice about their sexual activity? Well, that was very embarrassing. I never published it. <laughs> I feel almost as embarrassed as these researchers were about bonobos when they first realised <laughs> that bonobos don't settle their differences by uh, by fighting each other and arguing. They settle them by sex. So they have sex all the time. Bonobos are impossible. <laughs> And uh, the lovebirds, I realised, were probably called lovebirds because that's what they do. But they didn't reproduce. They only produced one egg a year. So and it's, it's not sex for reproduction? They have sex but don't reproduce. They keep their reproduction to their choice when it's right. And that happens to be once a year. But there were long spells of uh, of sexual encounters that went on for 20... I mean, it was unmissable. For 20 minutes, and if she wasn't satisfied, she looked back and cackled at him. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, as he got older, that poor thing was almost dying of apoplexy. Just he was breathing so heavily, he couldn't keep up the pace. (laughs) Yes, so. Well, these are, as you say, that might be why lovebirds have got their name, but do other birds maintain a sexual relationship beyond the demands of reproduction? Well, Nobody has studied that in detail, and we are terribly coy as researchers to do that. But uh, uh, veterinary scientists say whenever they get birds, particularly cockatoos, it's called a a prolapse of the cloaca, and it's usually caused by masturbation. From the parrot? Uh, From the the parrot, yes. You see, we keep individual parrots uh, at any rate. Nobody has to like to pursue this any further, but we I'd haven't... like to write the grant to research that. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't sorted out that attachment and commitment and cooperation may require completely additional and different kinds of preparations and even social knowledge, social learning. But also they need to have all these hormones. You know, they have to have the dopamine system, which they have. They have the oxytocin, which as humans, and uh, they learn all that through their uh, childhood. Well, it makes sense, though, doesn't it? If if we have these birds in Australia that live for 50, 60, 70 years and they're often pair-bonded for all that time, they're not producing young all of those years, but they need to maintain connection. They need to maintain a bond somehow. Exactly. So... Uh, that's a, that's a very important part, and that they don't reproduce immediately is also important to note. So uh, yes, it's a it's a very interesting story, and there is a, a dark side to this dopamine story for the listeners who are thinking of their teenage uh, kids. It, the brain is a terribly sensitive organ to grow, very thirsty and very hungry for nutrients. And it eats up about 60% of all the nutrients a body gets, at least in birds, but it's similar in, in humans. And if they, in this pro-social period, when all the connections are forming, don't get the opportunity to get their dopamine levels and their, all their various neurotransmitter signals right, they end up with a depressed dopamine level, which then can cause depression, uh, social maladaption, aggression, uh, 
all of the things mm. and, and suicide. So there is a whole list of consequences if pro-sociality, as it's called, is not fostered. That means they need to have social contact as part of their growing up. And the other thing is in humans, it's up to 25 years of age. You see, there are two sides to the brain. And the brain develops until age 25. And the last one to mature, there's a left side to the brain, there's a right side to the brain. The right side to the brain is the emotional one. And the communication between the two sides is actually um, done via the what's called the corpus callosum. Now, birds don't have a corpus callosum, but they also have a relay set of stations on how to relay messages from one side to the brain to the other. So the emotional right side can be impulsive and the left side can control it. But uh, if it's not fully grown, that message can be delayed. And so if your teenage child looks at Lou like a stunned mullet, it's because the message has <laughs> this the delay of, you know, it'd be a lay of three minutes from the emotional side to the other before you can calm them down. So, so wait. It's a hugely important sensitive phase. And when these teenage birds move into a stage where they are ready to form a, a connection and, and often a very long-term connection with a mate. What sort of rituals have you observed birds doing together? We know about the individual male bowerbirds and lyrebirds doing their yep. amazing display, but what have you seen male and female birds do together? Well, the whole interesting part in this bonding process is, and that's been studied in humans and it has actually been studied as displayed ritual in birds, but what the psychological consequences uh, have been hasn't been studied, and that's synchronizing. You synchronize your behavior. That means you're trying to mimic what the other is doing. That means I'm taking note of you and you are significant to me. So we are trying to do the same thing. And in glass, it's very funny. If one stretches out the left wing, the other one stretches out the left wing or the right wing, and they do this mirror imaging thing, and they preen at the same time. You perhaps have seen in Grebes the wonderful water dances that they do. They start with a gift-giving ceremony, then they look meaningfully at each other. Suddenly they turn around, they go above the water, and they both have this synchronized walk across the water. It's a fabulous thing. Brolgas have um, this wonderful uh, pecking at the same time at their own necks, and uh, there are ritualized features in that, and then they have a bit of a dance and a hop and a down and sideways. And so many birds have developed these mutual there's rituals, and they're very public rituals. They're very much like wedding rituals, and sometimes they're vocalizations, and they say, I'm in tune with you, and this is, we are, proposing here to stay together. Do they sometimes go looking for property together as well? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Sometimes in property market, they, uh, it's like in human society, money and property <laughs> come before love. <laughs> so if a magpie male has a very good territory and a female sees it, she'll come and said, I'll take him, all right, this is a lovely territory. So, And then hummingbirds the female will look for a territory and then take the male in her stride. But uh, in general, the uh, rule of this mutual cooperation is that they say right at the beginning of their relationship that they will equally share. And in Crimson Rosellas, the male will feed the female 
before they have started laying eggs or raised anything, to indicate that he'll be a good dad and he'll feed the adult female. She could get the food just as well herself. So this is a symbolic act and it's a gift-giving. And these are birds that share childcare, which... Exactly. Is that common in the world of birds? Well, uh, you see, all the studies... Now, uh, I don't want to exaggerate, but many of the studies, or most of the studies, actually, that have been conducted on birds are on the 5% of species where the female cares or the male cares for the offspring alone. That's only 5% of all the birds. And yet that's the majority of studies where the female cares alone because the male is very bright or he has a beautiful song. The song has been studied and uh, or the plumage has been studied and... Uh, we have that in Australia in the very uh, some very ancient species. How do tawny frogmouths go about negotiating whose turn it is to look after the bug? Uh, tawny frogmouths are the most, actually most of the Australian birds, interestingly enough, are very egalitarian-minded. So if Australians think Jack's as good as a master, all the birds in Australia think that too. So uh, we've done well to think of that, <laughs> but the birds thought of it first. And... Um, so they're totally equal in caring for their offspring. And, and the, sometimes they even have helpers at the nest, uh, their offspring from last year. And they communicate that with song or with gesture? or, or With or gesture and with communication. And the question is, you know, what communication is necessary in order to uphold that level of commitment? And uh, there is... Again, um, hormonal, that's a reductionist argument, of course, but there's hormonal evidence that oxytocin and the mutual preening and all this feel-good stuff and feel-safe uh, information is actually a crucial part of the whole thing. Having such a, a close and long bond as for humans, of course, opens up to the the loss that happens when one of those mates die. What if you observed around native bird pairs when, when one is killed? Yeah. Well, uh, there are very few observations on that, so there's very little that can, can be said about it, but I have observed two cases of tawny frogmouth where that has happened and where they have literally grieved and whimpered next to the dead bird and stayed there. In both cases, one survived and the other one actually died after four days. Of paying vigil to its, Pay, its mate. Yes, literally. Gazella, do you prefer birds or humans after all this study <laughs> that you've done? Well, uh, we are who we are. <laughs> but uh, it's very surprising to see and very important to note that evolution on a very different order of species has led to the same maximum point. And I like to add that to the time, long time childhood also leads to long play behavior, which fosters further intelligence. So the most intelligent, most successful species are also the ones that have the most cooperative. Gazella, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.